So tonight we continue moving through the book of John and we had the first part of John 2 this morning and now the second section of John 2 which begins at verse 12 and goes all the way through the end of the chapter. So John 2, we're going to begin reading at verse 12, and we're going to go through the end. So let's listen to God's holy and infallible word. After this, that's after his first miracle, the water into wine, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And that is God's word for us tonight. And he bless it to us. Now, you may be aware that we find this telling of Jesus' clearing of the temple in the other Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke also. But in all of those, it's way near the end of the books. In other words, very close to Jesus' death and resurrection. And in John, obviously, it's early on. It's in the second chapter. Some people think that maybe Jesus did something like this, clearing the temple two different times because of that. Like this was earlier in his ministry and the other one was later. But I'm not so sure about that. If, if you compare the details, they're just too similar for the exact same thing to have happened over a couple years apart. What I think this is, is it's just an example of something, and there are a lot of examples of this, of a gospel writer, and John does this especially, a gospel writer changing the chronological order of an event in Jesus' ministry in order to suit his purposes, in order to make a certain point. They're telling us historically what happened, but there's a goal and a purpose, right? It's not always exactly like this happened, you know. And one of the points that John has been making 
is how Jesus comes into the religious system of the day and he brings new life. The religious leaders were lost and they were off track, we read in chapter 1. And in turning water into wine, like we saw this morning, with that reference to the ceremonial jars of the Jews, we see Jesus coming into something that's broken and bringing something so much better than what was going on. And here, all of that is really dramatically confirmed. You know, that there were issues with Judaism of the day. There are some major issues going on in the heart of the worship of God, even. That's how serious it is. And, it's, and John's been sort of telling us this, and I believe at the end of chapter 2, he's, he's, you know, there are issues in the temple itself, the house of God, the place of worship. And Jesus steps in to clean house. John puts this right after the wedding in Cana, and the reality is, if you think about it this way, after a wedding, there needs to be a house cleaning. The home that a bride and groom are going to live in after a wedding has to be all prepared and cleaned for this new household to begin. And if you think about it, a bride and groom's hearts need to be cleaned and prepared for marriage too, right? A, a, a husband and a wife entering into marriage, they, they need to clear their hearts, love one another now as their only true love, as they enter into this partnership of love and fidelity, as we say in our wedding ceremonies. And we're going to talk about what it means to clean house tonight given all that. We're going to talk about what it means to clean house spiritually. Now, cleaning house, I can picture that really clearly in my own home. And I I think uh, probably Sarah can too, and I, I think you can as well. What happens after dinner is that there are dirty dinner pots and pans. There are dirty dishes. There are counters. There is a floor that needs to be cleaned up and swept. What happens with a two-year-old in the house is that she drags toys all over the place. She's a regular menace, and I think all two-year-olds are. Uh, She opens up drawers. She dumps stuff out. She goes to the next room of the house and does the same thing. What happens in a house with school-age children is that coats and shoes and boots and school papers and books can get left all over the place. And so a family needs to clean house regularly or it's going to start looking like a dump very, very quickly. Spiritually speaking, we can talk about house cleaning. And we can talk about house cleaning in the church And we're going to do that tonight, and we're going to talk about house cleaning in our hearts. In the church first, Jesus' disciples remembered this quote. Anyone know their psalms well enough to know off the bat where that's from? 
It's not a very familiar psalm. It's 69, Psalm 69. It's a psalm of David, like a lot of them are. Zeal for your house will consume me, is what he quoted. We talked about the church as the bride of Jesus this morning. One of the characteristics of a bride and of the church is purity. Purity. In Jesus' day, there was some defiling of God's house that had gone on. The main issue really was not that there was selling of cattle and sheep and doves going on. It wasn't that exactly. Temple worship required that these things needed to be available for sale. The people were commanded in the law of Moses to make sacrifices with animals. They had to get these animals somewhere. But it used to be many years before this sale went on in the mount on the slopes of the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. We don't know how it got here in the temple area, but it's very possible it could have started quite innocently. You know, let's make it a little more convenient for the people near where they're going to leave the sacrifice anyway. But in the temple courts themselves was a real problem. Temple courts, I think that's, yeah, in the temple courts, that's the language we have here in John 2 and in the other Gospels. Temple courts is a very particular language and phrase. It refers to the outer court of the temple. And the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were non-Jews. So what that tells you is God, even way back then, wanted his people to look beyond themselves, to be a light for the nations, not keep their faith in God all to themselves. Gentiles could worship and get to know God, the true God, the God of Israel, there in the outer temple area, the temple courts. So at least part of the defiling was a lack of caring for those outside the church. That was part of the defiling. That was defiling of God and to God, that they had no concern for those outside the church. The Gentiles were pushed out and left out in the cold. Another piece of this, probably the main piece, was the reference to the money changers. There was a currency exchange that needed to go on. There was a whole variety of different money on the streets in those days. Uh, there was local, local ones for Israel, the Roman ones, all kinds of stuff. A temple tax needed to be paid, but it could only be done with the purest currency out there. A very pure type of coin, a very pure silver, and that was different from the rest of the currency on the streets. And it seems that they were charging as much as 12% extra 
to make this exchange. So the sacrifices had become a means to make money and make a profit. And it really was becoming a cutthroat business. And that would especially negatively impact the poor, who God's people, of all the people that they were especially to look out for, it was the poor and needy. And they were especially hurting them with this cutthroat business way of dealing with the sacrifices, charging crazy amounts for these exchanges. And Jesus takes a whip. Maybe when you've heard this before, you picture Jesus like whipping people, but I don't think that's it at all. The whip was to drive out all the animals. But Jesus was very upset at the people, even if he didn't whip them. And this really highlights a part of who Jesus is, a part of his character that I think we can ignore. We think of Jesus' gentleness and his compassion very naturally and easily. And he is those things. But not only, he is righteous, our Lord is, as well as gracious. He's holy as well as merciful. The Bible talks about the wrath of the Lamb in addition to how we sang the the warmer, nicer language about the Lamb of God who came for us in that song. But the Bible also talks about the wrath of the Lamb. Does the house of God today, the church, need some house cleaning, do you think? No doubt it does. Do we have a zeal as God's people, as members of this church? Do we have a zeal for the Father's house to maintain the purity of the bride of Christ? Perhaps not always. A central thing to talk about when we talk about zeal for the Father's house I believe, is the church's worship. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again because it's very important. At faith, we are committed to God's way for worship. We're not interested in being cute or entertaining people or manufacturing new ways to worship. We believe that God's word shows us the way in worship. Our catechism in explaining the second commandment, and that's the worship commandment, it tells us we worship God only in the way that his word says to. And that is our foundation. That's how we approach worship at faith. We want to have a zeal for God's house, like Jesus and like David who wrote Psalm 69. That doesn't mean we're not relevant. It doesn't mean we don't reach out or warmly invite people and welcome them. I mean, the way God set up his house from the very beginning, after all, was with a court for the Gentiles, right? Cleaning house spiritually, it's about the church. But it's also about our hearts, and and that's where I want to focus for the rest of our time tonight. It's about our hearts. Most people think The central sin 
that angered Jesus here was covetousness. Coveting is wanting something that is not ours, whatever it may be. It's, coveting is kind of like envy. And in this case, it was especially related to greed and a desire for money, right? Do not covet is the 10th commandment. And the Heidelberg Catechism says something very interesting about what that's all about. Uh, do you remember from sermons or from catechism class what coveting is all about? We're told there that coveting is a do not covet. It's a summary of everything that God calls us to and requires of us as his people. All of our living for Jesus is really about the heart, is what do not covet says. Not letting any desire against any of God's commands rise up in our hearts, and with all our hearts hating sin and taking pleasure in what is right. The heart, our hearts, are called temples of the Lord in the Bible. And in addition to the church, God calls us to clean house in our hearts, to get rid of the clutter there. And in fact, we have to start in our own hearts before we go anywhere else, I'd say. There's a little book that I came across years ago that came to mind when I was working on this message, and it's called My Heart Christ's Home. It's nothing complicated or difficult. In fact, it's very, very short, and it's more devotional. With the author, Robert Boyd Munger is his name, and I think this first came out like in the 50s or 60s. What he does is picture Jesus coming into every room of our house as an illustration of him coming into every corner of our hearts. He starts with the study, the library of the house. And that represents our minds. Jesus, he comes in and he looks at the books on the shelves, the magazines on the table, the pictures on the walls of the library. And as he looks in your study, it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Because you know there are some things in there that a Christian has no business reading. And as he looks at those pictures on the walls, that's the imagination and the thoughts of our minds. Some of those pictures are downright shameful. Jesus begins to work on cleaning out everything that is not true or right or lovely or admirable. And instead, he fills the shelves with the books of Scripture to be meditated on day and night. Jesus next moves to the dining room, and that's the room of our appetites and our desires. And on the menu that day are some of your very favorite dishes, like money, academic degrees, visions of self-importance and power and acceptance by others. Jesus sees what's on the menu and you're a little disappointed that he doesn't sit down to share the meal with you and you ask, Savior, don't you like this food? What's the trouble here? And then 
Jesus starts talking about a different food, and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he says to you, if, if you want something that will truly satisfy, do the will of the heavenly Father. Put his will before your own desires and appetites. And he says to you, why don't, why don't you give that a try and partake of that food? Another room that he visits is the bedroom. And, and there in the bedroom, Jesus reminds you of his will for single and married people, for love and for marriage that is trampled on in our society. And, and Jesus reveals that you too have had desires that have defiled marriage. And then Jesus directs you again to his design for mutual love and respect, for his design of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, of wives respecting husbands in the Lord. And Jesus continues on to the rec room. You've got a pretty big house. You've got a lot of rooms. The rec room, the family room, the work room. And even he takes you to that, that big hall closet that you like to keep the door shut. A lot of cleaning out needs to be done in all those places. So how can we truly get rid of the clutter, you and I, and clean the house of our hearts? I believe the answer is in our text. In verse 18, the Jews demanded of Jesus, by whose authority are you doing this? In other words, they're saying something like, who are you to be, you know, who are you? Why should we be listening to you? Jesus doesn't really directly answer, but he does say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the literal temple, and that would have been impossible because it had been under construction for 46 years. And in fact, it kind of, if you take it at face value, it sounds like it was, it was 46 years and done. But the fact is, it was under construction for 46 years. In Jesus' day, it still was not totally done. And what verse 22 tells us is that Jesus was talking about himself. He was talking about his own body, his death and resurrection. In other words, he's bringing them and he's bringing us to his work of accomplishing salvation and redemption for people. In other words, we can clean house only by looking to the finished work of Jesus, only by belonging to this Jesus who died and rose again. And in fact, only he can do the work. We can't do it on our own. At the end of this little devotional book, My Heart Christ Home, and I'm summarizing it here a little bit, it says, it says this, I said to myself, keeping my heart clean for Christ is a lot of work. I work on one room and, and the one I just cleaned gets filled with junk again in no time. And then suddenly I said to Jesus, Lord, couldn't you just manage the whole house and operate it for me? And in fact, Lord, couldn't you become the master of my house instead of me, and I just be a guest there? 
And of course, Jesus says yes. And of course, that was Jesus' design all along. And there you have it. Giving our whole heart to Jesus. Are there any rooms or closets that you are insisting on managing yourself tonight in your life? Give him the key to those rooms too. Give him the key to even that back closet. There's one final part to the verses we read that we haven't discussed yet, and that's those last verses. I'm I'm not going to reread them, but it's 23 through 25. I don't know if you noticed it, but they're very sort of odd-sounding, and it's like, what is going on there? Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man. Well, I think that they show us the natural result of Jesus cleaning the home of our hearts, and that's this. You don't care what man thinks. Jesus didn't need or want the approval of man. He would not entrust himself to people, we read. And neither do we. And when you belong to Jesus, that is how it's got to be. It's got to be you and him. We don't live for the approval of others. You don't get pulled into that sort of thinking. Out of gratitude for what he's done, out of gratitude for him being the master of your heart, making you clean, you live for him, brothers and sisters. Come what may, no matter what they say. And that is the ultimate result of this house cleaning. Living for Jesus, caring what he thinks, and not worrying about anyone else whether it's someone else in this church, whether it's your friends at school, whether it's your co-workers or the guy down the block. We care about what he thinks. We don't worry about anyone else. We don't worry about what this world or culture is telling us. That way of living may not always be popular. It may leave us standing apart sometimes. But we follow the Father's will like Jesus did. And then we let the chips fall where they may. That's the way to live. After the wedding, house cleaning needs to happen. Ask the Lord to clear the clutter of your heart for his glory today. Amen.